Good morning, live from Sinai Temple. This is Rabbi Erez Sherman, the rabbi on the sidelines, where we speak about two words that often don't intersect, faith and sports. This morning, we are joined by Talia Caldwell from Los Angeles originally. She played for the University of California, Berkeley, up north. Final Four participant, professional basketball player, both in the WNBA and in Israel and around Europe. But most importantly, her work off the court that has shaped her own community and communities around. Talia, it is so good to see you. Long time no see. How you doing? Yes, good morning. Good morning. I know, unfortunately, uh, long time no see in person, but hopefully that changes soon, but we're being safe, which is most important. That is true. So Talia, you and I connected a couple of years ago when we had a mutual friend. It was actually my daughter's preschool teacher, who is your friend, who told me, hey, Rabbi, I have a friend that played basketball in Israel. Do you want to meet her? I was like, of course. So you came to our basketball camp, Sinai Temple basketball camp, and uh, you, beyond your court prowess, you were just an inspiration to me and to our our entire community. Um, And then we had coffee after and mm-hmm. your story just blew me away and you inspired me to do a lot of the work that I'm doing both in the sports field and the faith field. So I actually want to uh, go to your story off the court because you shared with me several generations ago about your great grandmother. Tell us a little about your great grandmother and how that connects to us. Yes. Well, um, you know, down in the lineage, she was from Germany. You know, she came from Germany as, as a Jewish woman you know, fleeing the persecutions of the time and came to Canada and and settled. But yes, um, German Jewish ancestry that, you know, a lot of people might not assume, you know, uh, changed her last name from Roth to Gottlieb, which I don't understand what she did if she was trying to hide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she went mm-hmm. from one <laughs> Jewish last name to another, which is, you know, I don't know if she knew that. <laughs> but yes, and uh, settled in Canada and eventually married and had kids with a black man from up that way and then most of my family is now in the uh, Michigan area so yeah and take us actually to your time in Israel um were there any types of connection points to your great-grandmother doing any research that way you know it's been tough because you know um when she came here because of her family didn't really approve you know it was the time it was, it was hard to see her a you know leave her family and then you know, uh, a married black man at that time, which was like, oh, wow, that's that's different. Her family and her didn't stay in touch a ton. So mm-hmm. we're still trying to connect more dots. Um, I forgot the the small village in Germany where she's from, but we do have the name of that. But I wasn't able to go uh, too, too far back. But when I was in Israel, I did, just from a person of faith, you know, growing up in, in the Christian tradition, uh, specifically for me, you know, the the Old Testament is all there, you know, and, 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 and Jesus and every, I mean, the whole Bible is just right there. So I definitely went all over, you know, mapping out areas that, you know, you read about. Cause I'm always reading the Bible and we'll Google what the modern, you know, country is. And a lot of times it's in that area, you know, and it's cool. Cause I've also even traveled those waters when I was playing in Greece, you know, mm-hmm. I was, I was in the Island of coast specifically. So it's funny how God works because I could have been anywhere in Greece, but I was in the island of Kos, which was literally 30 miles, a ferry ride I could see from the next land being Turkey. And that specific place that I was looking at would have been modern day Ephesus, which is, you know, Ephesians in the New Testament. So, you know, and then going to the island of Thessaloniki, which is, you know, Thessalonians in the New Testament. 
um, which is accredited to the, you know, Apostle Paul. So it's crazy how I've been through all of those waters, you know, um, with a basketball and a Bible in my hand. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I had Chelsea Hopkins, Israeli MVP. Um, yeah. And she said the same thing. I said, what was it like when you landed at Ben-Gurion Airport? And she was like, well, Tel Aviv sort of looked like Santa Monica. But when I got to Jerusalem, the Bible made a little more sense. Right. Um, so I love how you said holding a basketball in one hand and the Bible in the other um, has sort of led you through that way. Um, I want to actually take you to a book that you recommended to me several years ago called $40 Million Slave. Um, and this was before athletes put words like equality and justice on jerseys. Um, take us through the importance of that book in your own life and how you have decided to use your position as a athlete um, to make those changes in our society. Right. Great question. And I want to be accurate because we had, I talked about that book in 2017. I remember early 2017 when I first met you. So that was, that was before male athletes were putting those terms on jerseys. And we've got to be very specific because, and this is, you know, no fault to anyone from the civil rights movement to all types of suffrages across the years from people across all colors, all fights we are finally seeing as a society how many women were the forefront, mm. right? Martin Luther King came late to the front. You know, he was a pastor doing his thing. There was tons of women in Georgia, women before Rosa Parks who were doing it. And because, you know, we have to admit intersections we're still dealing with, like patriarchy, which is, like I said, it's fine that we're, we're dealing with it, that a lot of those movements have been suppressed. So the WNBA athletes like in the Minnesota links with, you know, Maya Moore, she mm-hmm. was that summer 2016, 2015 after Ferguson and, you know, after Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. So they were doing that vocally with their t-shirts early, you know, um, and really putting their necks out there. So I want to acknowledge them. So yeah, that book, just in general, that book has been important for the conversation because people always assume that if you are getting paid for something, you are not being exploited. And that's not how capitalism works, you know? Um, if I'm selling a product that you and I are making, you know, and my profit is 90% and yours is 10 and we are equally involved in it, that's not equity, you know? And if I have restrictions towards what you can and cannot do, you know, and I don't have any, are you really free? Is it really a free market, you know, society? Not too much. So I just love the title alone for people. It's crippling because it, it's it's a juxtaposition of how can you be essentially not free, but you're getting paid because it messes up our whole notions of freedom. Freedom is not just, you know, you're breathing. Are you free if you don't have full rights as everyone else? <laughs> you know, are you free if you're being exploited, you know, and uh, and I think especially being a black person and seeing America, even certain conversations around politics now, we want to give people the bare minimum and crumbs and be like, why are you not happy? <laughs> mm-hmm. So you brought up a lot of different things. You brought up politics. And I want to talk about business for a second, because when you're speaking about business, you have a degree in that. The yeah. first, I believe, female Cal athlete to attend the Haas Business School at University of California. Yes. Um, what did that mean to you in terms of bringing that aspect into your athletic career that you can help change the face of sports? And by the way, when you talk about women's sports and being the front, uh, the, the face of, of that movement as well, I'm reading Etan Thomas's book right now, We Matter. 
and he mm-hmm. interviews Swing Cash and Maya Moore, and uh, and they made a difference by not just their voice, but in fact their actions as well. So bring that business aspect into what that's looked like through your athletic career and making changes. Right. You know, what's interesting about me to let you down is I compartmentalize a lot. So I didn't go into (laughs) it. I didn't go into it thinking this is how I'm going to intersect the two. Like a lot of my life is very separate for for reasons that help me, you know, like I need to focus on each task and I don't do things like a lot of people don't realize with, you know, women, black women, whatever. I don't go into it trying to trailblaze. You're just living your life. Like I don't wake up with the burden of how can I carve a lane? Like that's exhausting. That'd be exhausting if I woke up Mm -hmm. So I knew since, you know, middle school, high school, before I had the perfect, you know, words to it, I was like, yeah, I think I want to continue to like study things in business. So I know how money works, you know, I know how to manage things so I can work for myself. That's just words I had. So I knew going into Cal is why I went, picked Cal that I wanted to study business. I don't, I never actually kept the two of basketball and business, but when I look back now, you know, I always say one day it all makes sense. It connects the dots perfectly in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, um, language I had to things when I would hear about, you know, contracts. And, you know, some people hear the word, you know, the, this team made X amount in revenue. You know, like we have this great conversation right now. You know, every uh, every guy on team with hurt feelings gets mad. We talk about the equality and pay situation. And they talk about, you know, these NBA teams, whatever, whatever, uh, the NBA is at a loss. And I'm like, NBA teams, a lot of professional male sports have high revenue and not all have a profit. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. many teams that are being propped up, you know, because a lot of people are operating at a loss, but you invest in it for other reasons. And that just blows my mind when you start bringing in revenue, cost, and all of these things and profit. So, yeah, it all worked out, but I didn't go into it with the with the idea of it connecting. <laughs> no, I agree. I think a lot of people don't. Uh, most people compartmentalize here. I'm a mm-hmm. basketball player. Last week I had Dan Schulman on the show and he was saying, look for two hours. My job is to entertain people. He mm-hmm. said, he's not necessarily worried about labels. Right. At the same time, two weeks ago, I had Andy Katz who said, no coach is going to silence a player right now to actually make those changes with the labels that they have. Um, so take us through labels. Do athletes have labels? Should they have labels? I'm, I'm a black athlete. I'm a white athlete. What does that look like? And how has that changed perhaps within your playing days? Yeah, I think it all depends on what you define yourself, you know, like, you know, I think Audrey Lord had said, you know, if, you know, if I, if I don't define myself for myself, you know, I'll, I'll let other people's definitions of me crush me alive. Nice. So it doesn't matter. It's like when people don't subscribe to a race, it doesn't matter if you subscribe to it, someone else <laughs> subscribes to it and it affects people's real lives. So it's like people who say I'm not political or that doesn't whatever, because it doesn't affect you. That's a privilege. Whenever you can say it doesn't matter who I vote for and in any kind of way, it doesn't matter what happens. You're saying it doesn't matter because I'm going to be fine regardless. Mm-hmm. And you're not thinking about people who, who are not going to be fine, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes to how your identities are, those are important. Whatever it is, some people's identities are, I am a child to Thomas and Marie, and that's their most important identity. Some, mm-hmm. I am, you know, a Southern Baptist. I am a Midwest, like whatever your inner your identity, because it makes you who you are. You cannot act like it didn't influence you. You know, it didn't. You can't act. That's not possible. So, I think it matters to the person. I'm not going to tell someone what their identities hold them. You know, but we all have one, whether you acknowledge it or not. And like I said, it could be as simple as I'm a brother, I'm a father, I am Mm -hmm. 
a, a student. I am a this. And that, and also we already know it's like a, a given. We're not saying that's all you are. We're not saying right, right. It's talking about communities. It's talking about things you care about. It's things that you hold dear. You know, there's, there's multitudes and that's still not going to define your interest. You know, I think the issue is nothing wrong with identities. The issue is when you see an identity and you assume what you know about that person. Right. You know, if you tell me you are Polish, I'm like, you're Polish and I respect that. The issue comes when I when I then say, oh, you're Polish. So this, 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 this. That's exactly. where it is. That's why I hate people say colorblind society. We're all the same. There's no issue in someone being Thai, Cambodian, Nigerian. Russian, there's no issues in that. That's beautiful. The problem is when you ascribe things to them that are, you know, you think they're less than. If you think everyone's equal, you want everyone to be who they are and still equal. Period. So I'm going to bring it back to sports, actually, because I think sports is an equalizer that brings people together. Look, there was no way many of my guests that I would ever have a chance to speak with them if I wasn't a rabbi and they weren't in the sports world. Right. Right. I'm mm-hmm. living out my dream right now, you know. Rabbi, you're on the basketball court. You saw me in shorts and t-shirt on the court. And yeah. why, why are you spending all that time on the court? I said, no, because the I'm not compartmentalizing. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I think that to live a life of intersection these days is more important than doing, I'm doing this and the next three hours I'm going to do this. Right. You brought up the power of the word as well. And I would say you also identify as a writer. Mm-hmm. You've written not just blogs on uh, Facebook and Instagram, but also within the New York Times as well. I want to share with you somebody, an article that you wrote after the death of Kobe Bryant for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. It was entitled, Why the WNBA Love Kobe Bryant. And you said, I loved it. You said, I wasn't writing for the New York Times, but I was writing for Kobe. Take us through that thought process of sitting in a hotel room in Poland as a professional athlete, having the loss of Kobe Bryant, writing that article and what it meant to you and therefore what it meant to the rest of the world. Yes, um, I feel like whatever your craft is, basketball, if you are a rabbi, (laughs) whatever it might be, your craft, it has to be personal to you. Once you start doing Mm -hmm. things for other people, and I don't mean, not in terms of doing things that help people, I'm not saying that, but I mean, you're doing it for someone, like, this is for that, that's why I do this, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't preach about God because I love God, but because other people, you know, whenever you're doing your craft, it needs to be very personal, a passion, a love, you know, it's like a relationship, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think we all get bogged down when we forget that. So for the New York Times, because it came as a surprise, you know, I didn't ask them, they contacted me. There's this first, you know, pressure of like, oh, the New York Times, you know, and mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant, <laughs> like he just, he had, I got, they asked me the day he died, like a couple hours wow. after. Um, Cause it came out, you know, like, the next day or two days after. So I was first like, whoa, where'd you get my information from? How, how are you contacting me? You know, uh, like, do you know and why did they contact you? Like, why, why did they say Talia Caldwell was the right person to write well, this they, article? They knew I was, you know, I'm not saying I'm the only right, uh, you know, professional basketball player who writes, but I am one of a few who is, you know, that's what I do. Like I am a writer. So they were like, you play professional basketball. Mm-hmm. You've been accomplished in this space and you write and you write well. So I, I think it was as simple as that to just knock it out the park. But there was a little bit of pressure, you know, a little bit like, oh, shoot, the New York Times, I got to perform. And, you know, whenever you start thinking about to perform. And then I finally, like, it was like a quick two-second thought. Then I was like, no, just do what you do. I said, yes. I told myself, you know, 
It's like it's like being in the zone. Your best at games are when you're in the zone. You're not thinking about your points, your stats. You don't know who's in the crowd. We all know the zone is you're you are locked in. You don't even see or feel anything. So I told myself, I don't care if they like it or hate it. I'm writing my words for Kobe. No, this is what I would write. And if they say no, change it. I'm gonna say find someone else because this is what I'm writing. Like, I'm, I can't lie to myself. So yes, yeah, so when I said these are my words for Kobe, it's because I believe for me art and writing is a love letter to whatever subject you're doing, you know? So Say that again. That's amazing. Everybody's got to hear that. Yeah, I feel like art, whatever you're doing, whether it's a, whether it's film, TV, photography, cooking, any art, sculpting, it's a love letter to your subject, you know? You have to fall in love with it because it's a frustrating. It's a very frustrating craft, all of this, you know? Drafts and upon drafts. You have to be in love. Same relationship. Arguments, fights, differences. You got to be in love, you know? So everything for me in art, it's a love letter to the thing that I'm writing about. And I always hold myself to three things. And one is I have to be honest to first myself, so whatever I'm feeling, honest to the subject, whatever that thing I'm writing about, whether it's music, whether it's Kobe Bryant, I'm honest to them, meaning bring up all their complexities, you know. And third is I have to be honest to not knowing because some people get in trouble because they're like, answering every question. I'm really good about disappointing people and saying, I'm not sure about that. You know, I don't I know. I can't tell you. Mm-hmm. And that's a period. That's it. So those are three things I'm honest to. And that was, my, that was my love letter to that subject, which was Kobe. So one thing that you wrote in that article, you said, what began as Kobe being a great father organically grew into a genuine fandom for the woman's game. He didn't force his presence or praise. Mamba was simply a fan and that sent an important message. What was his impact for you on the women's sports game? And also, I want to tie that to your college coach, Lindsey Gottlieb, who mm-hmm. was at Cal, Final Four, and mm-hmm. then goes actually into the men's game and is an assistant coach with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Is there a connection there? Um, what do you see? You yeah. know, her, Becky Hammond, now serving one game as a head right. coach of the Spurs when Popovich was tossed. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, the, the thing that I hold dear, if it got cut out for Kobe specifically, I have a connection. He left us. I, I, I'm, I'm trying oh, to find nice. it. I cannot. He left us a grainy 2013 video wishing us luck <laughs> and being like, I'm so proud of you guys. Go get it. Because um, he, around the time the March Madness run on our, you know, elusive March Madness run, at that point, we were already a top, we were the number two seed, right? So we were already a top mm-hmm. team. Everyone knew about us. Obama picked us for his bracket, you know. So people have been watching us. We were a very fun team. And it was during the time of season where, you know, the Lakers were playing Golden State. And people don't realize when you travel, a lot of times you don't have access to professional arenas. Arenas are very much used for just events, whether it's a concert or a game. It's not like training facility. They don't practice there. So when they come in late at night for Kobe, who's coming off, you know, all his injuries, he needed to use um, an underwater treadmill. And Cal, you know, we have a really new high-performance center that that was new um, then. So he was there in the middle of the night, super late, you know, and trainers were assisting him. And someone, you know, not affiliated with our team, another trainer said, hey, our women's team is on the way to whatever round, either Final Four or something. And he was like, oh, my God, yeah, of course. And so he's like, I'll leave them a message. And he, you know, took his time in that space to be on camera and give us his all. And it just like we were so excited, like, oh, my God, Kobe knows us, you know, there's that connection. And, you know, um, you know, a lot of. That's what's so funny about people who dismiss women's sports. A lot of college female coaches have strong NBA connections. They mm-hmm. know the game better than anyone. There's there's really no better basketball mind than a women's college coach. Like, I promise mm-hmm. you, there's none. 
Like Kim Mulkey, McGraw, you know, Gino will outcoach any NBA coach. This is a fact, you know, schematics, skill work. So Coach Gottlieb, for example, like a lot of other uh, college coaches, had been in contact with tons of NBA, you know, people, and mm-hmm. they all know her. So she had known Kobe had been following her on Twitter already for years, you know, so they were familiar. And actually, one of my injuries that I had had um, in my professional career, Coach Gottlieb had told Kobe about me, and we just never were able to connect, you know, officially, which we know, which really is, is, is sad. But I'm always happy mm-hmm. to know that he knew about me, you know, that people had told him about me, like, oh, you would love Talia. So I'm like, at least he knew my name and knew, you know, I existed out there. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that connection was real. You know, he, he took the time to do something for us that he didn't have to. So I've always appreciated that. Nice. Um, so I want to then go to your work off the court. And that mm-hmm. really has gone this past year. You come home. There's a pandemic. I know you had injuries here and there. And there's an article that spoke about your work in Echo Park. Before I do that, I just want to play a quick video about the word relentless and what it means for you to be relentless. So we'll take a look at this. I'm relentless. I am relentless. Uh, I won't stop ever, no matter how dirty the work is, no matter how hard it is. Um, I'm not going to stop until I get the job done, whether it's in a game with my teammates or off the court um, with friends, people I care about. I'm relentless. There's nothing that's going to stop me from reaching my goal. I'm just too hungry. You're just too hungry. We're going to use that word hungry. Tell us as you come home, you're running through Echo Park, which is a neighborhood here in Los Angeles for those watching outside of L.A. What happened and what inspired you? Because there are many people that run by a homeless encampment and says they're doing they compartmentalize. They're doing right. this. I'm doing this. Yeah. So what, what happened this past year? Look, at, look at college chubby cheek Talia, uh, early baby Talia. Um, <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, it was in the pandemic, and I just, you know, the gyms were closed, and I'm a runner, so I had to find some place to run. And, you know, for the first several months, I didn't, you know, it was probably the first month and a half of me running. I didn't stop, mainly because, um, not because I didn't notice, I always, you know, looked at them. A, when I'm running, I am in the zone as an athlete. But another thing was, uh, I felt like I was already in their space. I was like, let me just get out of here as quick as I can because mm-hmm. there's their house. Like I felt like it was, I was kind of rude for running in their house, you know? So a lot of it was me trying to respect them more than anything and not make a spectacle out of it. And it wasn't until, you know, um, after the BLM LA March, um, after George Floyd was killed and I was just feeling so emotionally drained after being there and seeing how things just got so escalated through no part of protesters because I was there and I just needed a, a release, and I just was like, I had had a bunch of medical masks that my friend had gave me, or he bought. Yes. And yeah, remember, this is like May 30th. This is, this is when yep. you still couldn't find water, you couldn't yes. find bleach. Like, the mask was like $45, and I was like, yep. if this is a stretch for me and my friend, because I'm very frugal, you know, and fiscally responsible, mm-hmm. I'm like, if this was a lot of money for me, imagine someone who is houseless, or working class, or you have kids, you're not spending your last $100 on masks. So I was like, you know what? You know, whenever you're feeling kind of down or, you know, tired, it's always good to get outside of yourself, right? So I was like, let me go to the park and get outside of myself and see who wants these masks. And I just organically was going around asking who wanted one. I was hearing their stories about like, oh yeah, I need this because when I sleep at night, you know, I drool, so I need five. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're outside, you're exposed. Like, I don't have to sleep with a mask at night. I don't have to. So so just talking to them. And then finally, I went to one encampment that was like, you know, the, the hub. Like you could just tell this, this this woman ran it, you know? 
And um, I went to talk to her with Diana and I wanted to ask her some questions like, hey, tell me what's going on. Like, I go to the store. I have a car. I go every once in a while. I can, you know, get some things. What was something that you could use? Like, mm-hmm. nothing major, just what? And she started explaining the things that are really vital to them, you know, that I wouldn't have assumed. You know, I wouldn't have mm-hmm. assumed butane fuel, you know, because that's where you, how they cook their food with the, the, the camp stoves. And you can't find butane fuel in Vons or Rouse. You got to go to either Home Depot or Walmart, not even Target. You know, things like that. And ice. Didn't realize ice is their main refrigeration. Of course, mm. it makes sense once you hear it. So ice is, you already know, like expensive. Imagine trying to carry that in LA heat. Yep. It's not possible. So, you know, I talk about being culturally competent, whatever space you're in. Oh, and okay. I, hate, I hate the phrase, you know, be the voice for the voiceless. No. And I heard a few years ago that's changed my life. That was, you don't have to be the voice for the voiceless. Just pass the mic. Just pass nice. the mic. Just especially people of privilege, and we all have privilege. You have a privilege as a white passing man. I have privilege as an able-bodied, non-trans person. Like we all have privilege. Like whoever you are, you know, I have a privilege over a differently abled trans woman. That's mm-hmm. a fact. And that's mm-hmm. okay if I am working to tear down certain things. So in that moment of passing the mic and just asking what they needed, I learned. I was humbled. So it's like, yes. I always tell people it doesn't make sense to drop off a slab of meat to a homeless encampment when they cannot store it or refrigerate it. So ask them what they need. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the store that day with my own, you know, humble $50 and bought supplies. The next day, she couldn't believe I actually carried through with it. Wow. She was so overwhelmed. I didn't feel like I did a lot. She acted like I just, you know, changed the world because I always tell someone, you don't have to change the world. You can change somebody's world. And that yeah. is effective. Um, Actually, there's a beautiful it. teaching by our rabbis that says if you destroy one destroy one person, that's as if you destroyed the world. And it's oh, a very wow. complimentary to exactly. It, it, it's a said. fact. So I saw that and was like, wow, that wasn't that hard. I didn't pressure myself. It didn't take anything out of me. I said, I have friends who I know are always looking to do some good, who have a couple extra dollars, not a ton. It's a pandemic. We're all going through something. No matter you make a million dollars a year or a hundred dollars a year, we're all still going through a lot. But I said, let me just see if anyone would want to, you know, like old school, high school. Hey, here's here's some money. You know, give me some money. Go to the store and pick up this. So I went on Instagram. I was like, hey, you guys, y'all know Echo Park is near and dear to my heart. It's an LA native. Been going there for a long time. There are some friends out there who just need a couple of simple things. I go to the store. I'm able to leave my house, you know, and safely quarantine. If you guys have any extra money and want to fill it in, here is our collective that we're starting just as a community. We are all in together, Echo Park Fund, and we'll go whenever makes sense and help people. It was very organic. It wasn't this giant, I want to save the world. It was just, we know people with resources. We know people who need resources. Let's just connect it. And what does that look like right now? Is it an actual organization? Is it still organic? Still very grassroots. Still very, everyone is like, some people are like, hey, I'm going to the park today. You want to come by? It's more just like a club where we just do things, you know. You know, some people can't be out there. So they'll give someone money and be like, hey, go to the store for me. It's very organic. And, you know, I was able to extend that to an event in South LA, in Lamert Park, which is predominantly black. And I, I had an event on October 7th called Homework and Hot Meals. And through donations of just friends, I was able to purchase, you know, dozens of laptops, like Chromebooks, you know, 
and had a, fr- a local friend, Hugh, a rapper from the area who makes mm-hmm. vegan meals, create like a couple hundred vegan meals. And it was social distance outside at the Regency West. And we had zoning and all this, like very, it was very safe, very professional. We planned it out and we were able to give away laptops and help people with homework, help kids with homework and tutoring and services and give supplies out and backpacks and clothes. Real simple. So what's coming up next? Because, you know, we're talking words. This is simply a podcast. It goes to YouTube, Facebook, but we have people listening. We have people that can actually do this. What is something today that we can make a call to action that you and me, all of us together that we can do? Um, specifically with Echo Park Fund or just all of us as individuals? No, I'm talking about you. You're doing the okay, good work at Echo Park Fund and it. let's do this together. I'm, I'm committed right now. What are we going to yes, do? Yes, honestly, um, the biggest thing that we can do right now is, well, the, oh, there's two fronts. So my next thing that I want to do in the spring is vocational stuff. So I'm always looking for people. If you are good at LinkedIn, if you're good at resume building, I don't, money is great. It's not the only resource. Money is, I'm not driven by money. You know, my pastor, Pastor Michael McBride at the Way Christian Center in Berkeley always talks about the three T's. You brought, you probably have your own version of it as well, <laughs> um, which is, you know, time, treasure, and talents. Nice. We all have one of those. Some of us don't mm-hmm. have a dime to our name. Mm-hmm. We got so much time right now and we can read mm-hmm. to a kid over Zoom. Some mm-hmm. of us don't have the time. Don't have many talents, but we've got a big checkbook and you can send a check and say, go fight the good fight. That's not right. my life. We all have our lanes and some people have a talent. You can teach kids free music. So I'm looking right now for a lot of services. I'm looking for legal services. A lot of these um, individuals need help with signing up for you know SSI, EDD, um, getting their taxes done to get their stimulus check. Uh, needing legal advice for misdemeanors they've gotten for very simple things like being at the park. I'm looking for services a lot of times. I'm looking for, like I said, tax people, um, social services people, mental health professionals who can go down there. Um, That's really the front that they need the most, you know, because a lot of them are tax-paying citizens who have had jobs in the past couple of months, you know, and just need a little bit of help. Nice. So uh, offline, we're going to See how we can do that together, actually. We're, cool. we're neighbors. One of my good friends, Pastor Pastor John Paul Foster from a Faithful Central Bible Church, he gave an amazing sermon. Oh, which my I, God. That's my, that's my childhood church. That's the church I grew up in. Bro, that's that's my pastor. Oh, <laughs> I'm his I'm rabbi. He's my pastor. And yeah. he gave an amazing sermon and said, who's your neighbor? Yeah. Um, especially during this past month, uh, th- th- these past few months. And we've really hit on that because we have to know our neighbors. And what you are doing with Echo Park Fund, like you said, you went into a different neighborhood and you decide to decide decide to find out who are my neighbors that I'm running into and how can we help our neighbors as well. Um, so the last question I want to ask you, actually two more questions. The first is um, your Instagram name, Five Fifths Culture. I know you also have a blog online. Tell us a derivation of that and what you try to get out on Instagram as well. Yeah, Five Fifths Culture on the website. It's F-I-V-E spelled out. And then my Instagram is just numerical five-fifths culture. And, you know, a lot of people don't really know the um, the background with that, but it's from the three-fifths compromise in the right. American Constitution, which, you know, um, you know, to justify slavery made, you know, African slaves property, you know. And it wasn't until the South was like, oh, if we start counting all this property as people, we can start getting more, you know, ha- uh, you know, powers in the House and delegate votes and all of that. And, you know, but to justify the supremacy they had over them, they were like, well, we can't. 
make an African slave a full human. That'd be crazy. So, you know, every black person in America is three-fifths human. I know you could be a fraction of a human, but apparently you can. <laughs> it's a really dark time because people don't realize it wasn't an unofficial. It was official. It was in our constitution. So I hold that with me. I hold that with me that the country that I was born into at one point considered people who look like me a fraction of a human. And so mm-hmm. now I'm reclaiming that. I'm not, I'm not the first black person to ever say five fifths by no means been around for, for, for a minute, but um, considering my, my focus is on culture, whether it's, you know, music, sports, TV, things like that. And I'm usually intersecting it with black culture specifically. It was my, it was my way of saying black culture. And for me, it's my way of just saying I'm whole, you know, I have it tattooed on my arm, you know, five fifths, just five or five. So yeah, that that's that's me. It's 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 a part of me, you know. I love it. So the question I ask every single guest to conclude mm-hmm. our show is about the future. Because if we're yeah. gonna do anything, we're not just talking about what we did and what the past has given to us, but what we can give to the future. What is your message? And that's why I brought you to that Sinai Temple basketball camp a few years ago to give mm-hmm. that message to our young kids. And they ask you the questions of can you dunk and can you shoot right, the right, right. blah blah blah. But the real question, because we're really talking to an adult audience right now, but about the future. What is the message? Take away the compartmentalization and let's put the intersection into our lives. We started with basketball. We got to Echo Park Fun. We talked about culture, religion. We named it all in 33 minutes here. Right. What is the future? What is the message to these young children who start with the basketball in their hand? but don't understand at this moment that they can make a larger difference by actually intersecting all of these passions. My message is simply embrace your journey. Don't have so much resistance. Don't have any shame in where you are. Cause like I said, it just, it just makes it harder It adds more resistance. So embrace your journey. You know, don't have resistance, don't have shame, and let yourself make mistakes. It's how you will learn. And be open to learning. Really be open to learning. And I think it'll all work out. It'll all work out how it should. All the pit stops, all the hurdles, if you're keeping your heart pure in that, you know, I think uh, if I had to just finish it, the one the one quote that I would say is really good for young people, especially, I think all people, but especially young people to live by, is Thurgood Marshall, you know, the first black Supreme Court justice, is what is the quality of your intent? What is the quality of your intent? And, you know, we all hear about intentions, but we all know intentions does not negate impact. And I think if you try to strive for a high quality of what you're doing, you can live with the failures, you can live with the bumps, the bruises, the mistakes, you know. When someone corrects you with grace and with love, you can live with it because you know your your intention is with high quality, which means you plan for things a certain way, you you invest, you work on yourself. Quality of your intention matters and in how you do something. You know, it's like practicing bad or practicing good because it's all practice. Life is a practice. Practice plus practice equals a practice. So just make sure the quality of it is where you can be proud. You heard it right here, Rabbi on the sidelines, Talia Caldwell, Kavana. That's the Hebrew word for intention. That's how we live Ooh, our life. I love that. That is how we live our life with the purpose, the purpose that God has given us and the purpose that we have to bring to this world. Talia Caldwell, so great to see you. We can't wait to see you in person and most importantly, partner 
and what you're doing in the Echo Park Fund with us here at Sinai Temple. Um, University of California, Berkeley, final four participant, Israeli and professional European basketball player, WNBA, but most importantly, a wonderful, amazing young person, young woman, young black woman who is inspiring us to make tomorrow's world much better than today. Talia, it's so great to see you, and we look forward to seeing you it soon was so great. on Rabbi on the Sidelines. <laughs>